So let's pray. Lord, I do uh, just thank you for uh, the Life Choices ministry and, Lord, all that they do. And we ask that you would um, just cover them with protection, with provision. We thank you for all the miraculous ways you've done that thus far. And, Lord, we, we expect that uh, you'll be no different in, in continuing to take good care of your children. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would continue to do that and, and keep us mindful um, uh, to be in prayer and to uh, focus on uh, the value that you place on every single human life. And Lord, we, we appreciate and respect that value as human beings that are created in your image. And so Lord, that is, that is no small thing. And uh, we know that you take that seriously. And so we pray that you bless them, Lord. We pray that you bless our time in your word now and that we would give honor to your word and that we would uh, hear from your Holy Spirit and that we would learn from you. So please do that work in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Amos chapter 3. Lord willing, today we'll read Amos chapter 3 and 4. If you're visiting or you're new and you say, I don't think I've ever sat through a Bible study on Amos before, let me just tell you, neither is most of the people here, <laughs> including me. <laughs> so uh, um, we believe with all of our hearts, and I, just want, I know I say this all the time, I want to never get tired of saying this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And our scripture is what we need to guide us. And uh, really, like never before, do we need the guidance of the Word of God. I'm just so, I mean, just this is an example of it. We need it so bad. And I think that um, these words that we'll read today, I'm, uh, I'm passionate about them. And so sometimes you know that uh, when I get passionate, I get fired up. So it's not like I'm mad at anybody or, um, you know. You ever been in like a, we were in Ukraine years ago, um, uh, adopting a child. And uh, Trace and I are in a room and people are speaking Russian. You ever been in a room with people speaking Russian? They're like best friends and they love each other. But, like, you want to break it up. <laughs> you're like, and afterward, you know, you're talking to your translator, and you're like, was that okay? Oh, no, we were just hanging out. <laughs> so, anyway, <clears throat> so when I get passionate, that's kind of how I, I roll. So, I'm, I'm, I'm in a good mood today. Everybody okay with that? So, um, Amos, we talked about last week, we introduced uh, the idea of basically what he, was, what he was doing. Amos, I want you to picture this in your mind, is a sheep breeder from Tekoa. And as we pointed out last week, Tekoa is a no-name place, and uh, Amos is just like this sort of, think of a picture of a hick country boy um, from Tekoa in the southern kingdom of Judah, preaching up in Bethel in the northern kingdom of Israel, and so, sort of preaching to the elites, the, the religious elites, the uh, probably intellectual elites. And Amos is like this, you know, country boy going up and preaching to them. And, uh, and so he would have good reason to be intimidated on multiple levels. Recall also, if you would, and I don't want to review too much, but I want us to all be kind of on the same page that in the days wherein the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom we, we would then call the nation of Israel. It was made up of the, of the ten tribes, the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel. And the southern kingdom we called Judah, called, made up of the southern uh, two tribes of Israel. And Jerusalem was in Judah. But when Jeroboam, the first king of the, of the northern kingdom, the northern fractured part, if you will. When Jeroboam became king of that northern kingdom, he set up two false 
I, uh, false uh, altars, calves actually, and uh, with the horns on the altar and the whole pagan thing and all that. Put one in Dan, way up in the northern um, uh, part of the country, and one in Bethel, in still in the northern kingdom, in the northern kingdom of Israel, but in the kind of the part that's a little bit closer to Judah. And the idea was he wasn't like discarding the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews. He was embracing the God of the Jews. Catch this. He was merely rewriting how they were to worship God. Same God in his mind. Just we're going to do it sort of contemporary and hip. Does that ring a bell? Contemporary and hip? Is that should be okay, right? We're still talking about the same God. No, absolutely not. God is the one that decides how he is to be worshipped. And this is why, like never before, do we need to be students of God's word. Because Christianity, the very faith that we live, is being redefined. And that's what I'm passionate about. Christianity is being redefined according to cultural norms, according to my opinion, according to my political persuasion, according to my social group, according to my whatever, and not according to the Scripture. And that's why we need to be students of the Word of God. That's why we're reading a study on Amos this morning. And that's why after we do Amos, we'll go to the back of the New Testament, and we'll do James. And after we get done with James, you know what we're going to do? Obadiah, Jonah. There's a song that I won't sing it. It helps you memorize those Old Testament minor prophets. But we're going to read the Bible. Because the Bible is part of Scripture. And all Scripture is inspired, inerrant, given by inspiration of God, and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we need to know that. And we need to live that. So, in many ways, and I want to paint the picture here a little bit today, in many ways, the northern kingdom of Israel, the altar at Bethel, looks very much like our nation does today. And I want us to capture that, okay? Because, you know, we, God is God. We've got to be very careful not to say, well, God is doing this or God is doing that necessarily, apart from just what we see in the Scripture. But we can look at history and see what God has done, and we can... No, because we're students of the word, we can know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if God takes a society of the northern kingdom of Israel and brings judgment on that society, on that nation, and he warns of that judgment that's yet to come, and as we sort of break it apart, we realize that society looks very much like ours, then you draw your own conclusions. Does that make sense? Now, I went to church today, and he said God's bringing judgment. I didn't say that. I said you draw your own conclusions. But God would not be out of, out of line or inconsistent with what he's done before if he does bring judgment. And when God brings judgment, I want you to catch this. Nate, I can, can I puff Nate up a little bit because he's not in the room? Is it okay? Anybody tells him this, I'm going to deny it. I won't deny it, actually. That'd be an integrity problem. But on Wednesday night, he's talking about the tribulation. A horrific time on planet Earth. And he's bringing out the fact that God is warning his people. And the fact that God warns his people, the fact that we have the book of Revelation is an amazing picture of God's grace. And the number of people that are going to get saved in the tribulation is an amazing picture of God's grace. And yet, I would argue that we need to be right with God before the tribulation. We need to be right with God before the tribulation. So anyway, uh, 
the judgment, you know, whenever we read about judgment, we think, wow, that seems harsh. But keep in mind, God is warning his people. Warning is, a, is really an example of God's grace. And so God is warning his people. And so this nation that uh, we'll describe, the nation of Israel, at this time was extremely prosperous. It was during the reign of Jeroboam II. And uh, while King Uzziah was reigning down in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it was a time of great prosperity. You ever known any prosperous nations? It was a time of great prosperity. People were enjoying this time of great prosperity. And we talked about last week, I won't show the picture in the interest of time. Last week we talked about God started out this prophecy by saying, you know, I'm going to bring judgment on Syria. I'm going to bring judgment on the Philistines. I'm going to bring judgment on Tyre and the, the, the Phoenician uh, nations. And I like to, as one guy said I was listening to, God didn't even spare Tyre in his judgment. That's why I said one guy said it. I didn't say it. Uh, God brought judgment on Edom. God brought judgment on Ammon. God brought judgment on Moab. God brought judgment on Judah. And then finally God's working his way around to Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's, I think it's so important because it's like God... You know, the Syrians, oh yeah, you know, if you, were a, if you were a Jewish person in Bethel worshiping your false idol and feeling good about yourself in all your prosperity and all your religious pride and all that, and, and you're hearing about God bringing judgment on Syria, you're like, that's right, thump those Syrians. Yep, and then comes uh, the Philistines. Oh, yeah, we hate them too. Uh, thump those, those Gentiles. And then the Phoenicians, oh yeah, thump those Phoenicians. Edomites, yeah, we're still not very happy about Esau, thump them, and then the Ammonites, the Moabites, all the way around, and then finally, God says, no, I'm bringing judgment to you. I'm bringing judgment to you. And so, uh, there's so many parallels. I don't want to belabor them. So many parallels. You know, I, I think sometimes as a Christian nation, you know, we think of ourselves as a Christian nation. That can either cause us to feel entitled Spiritually superior, better than those Gentiles, if you will, or it should cause us to be thankful. Clearly, we should choose the latter. We should choose the latter. So he goes on, that was, that's sort of the first couple chapters, and then he starts in chapters 3 through 6. We won't read all of 3 through 6 this, uh, this morning, but we'll read 3 and 4. 3 through 6, there's a series of sermons. Uh, if you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it starts out, hear this word. Chapter 4, verse 1, hear this word. Chapter 5, verse 1, hear this word. And then he goes on to uh, the rest of 5 and 6. He's going to say, uh, woe is you, verse, chapter 5, verse 18. Woe is you, chapter 6, verse 1. Woe is you, chapter 6, verse 3. So we're going to have sort of... Um, uh, this series of, of, if you will, sermons, they're really just like little exhortations, and we'll read chapters 3 and 4 of them today. But they start out, hear this word. Chapter 3, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, interestingly, in chapters 1 and 2, we read about those other nations, right? And God is calling them to account and holding them accountable for their sin. But God is identifying here, I've known you guys. You are, you, the Jewish people, he would say in that day, are my children. Today, for us, he would say, you guys are my children. That should mean something. And again, that, should, that could cause us to say, yeah, I'm a child of the king. I deserve XYZ treatment, right? Or you could say, thank God. I don't know why he chose us, but I'm so thankful that he did. And I want to act and live like I'm a child of God that gives honor and respect and gratitude to him for all he's done for us. That's how we should live, right? We can't live uh, like we're entitled to anything. We are very privileged. 
And as a result, God holds us to a higher standard. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much will be required. We need to take note of that. To whom much is given, much will be required. How much have we been given? As a nation? As individuals? Spiritually? You know, we all, you know, so much of our brain defaults to, you know, economics. You know, we're a prosperous nation. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> but we're spiritually rich. We're spiritually rich. Yeah, God has blessed us with some prosperity as a nation, but we are spiritually rich. We've got a rich heritage. And to whom much is given, much will be required. The Jewish people in this northern kingdom, they were held to a higher standard, but they failed to recognize they failed to recognize that they were so privileged and failed to respond with thanksgiving verse 3 says can two walk together unless they are agreed will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey so he's given us a few rhetorical questions now that the answers are all no okay can two walk together unless they are agreed no Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? No. Keep in mind this is a, shepherd. This is a sheep breeder, right? He's, he's watching sheep and raising sheep, and so he's kind of sensitive to these lion metaphors. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? No. Will a snare spring up from the earth if, he has, if it has caught nothing? No. And so the answers here are no, no, no. Uh, keep in mind, these are questions that Amos is trying, that God is using through Amos to try to get their attention. He said, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And so if a trumpet's blown in the city, it's a battle cry in those days, right? You're in the, everybody's in the city. You know, they didn't have technology like we do. So they blow a trumpet. That's a battle cry. The people would probably have some fear, but they would also say, hey, it's time to, time to respond, time to, time to go to battle, time to do whatever we need to do, time to be responsible. And sometimes he responds by saying, in the same way, if there's calamity, will not the Lord have done it? And so, again, I want to be very careful. Please hear me. I hope you know, I hope... I hope you don't mis, mishear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that God always brings calamity or if, if I'm having a bad day, I can blame it on God. Oh, God brought this, right? But I am saying this. We should be a people that knows how to pause and look up and at least ask the question, God, what are you doing? God, are you trying to show me something? God, are you trying to teach me something? God, is there something I need to do? Like David in Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know my heart and see if there be anything in me that's, that needs to be fixed or changed or modified. See if there's any wicked way in me. And as we look around in our world today and in our nation today and in our lives today, as we see things going on, I think it's a fair question. If there's calamity in a city... Will not the Lord have done it? It's possible that the Lord is doing stuff. Is that too much of a stretch? I don't think so. The danger in our world today, please catch this. This has an asterisk on my notes. So that means, please catch this, to me, and now I'm saying it to you. I'm asterisking right now, Okay. The danger in our world today is that we look to man for the solutions to the problems that are beyond man. The danger in our world today is that we look to man for the solutions to problems that are beyond man. These problems, rather, should cause us to humble ourselves and cry out to God for help. We have seen in the last few years even problems that 
man is trying to fix. And regardless of your politics, you don't have to be a statistician or a math major to say, I don't think man's doing a very good job. Right? The danger in our world today is we look to man for God size, for solutions to God size problems. It's time for us to look to God for the solutions to God size problems. Now, as a, as a nation, we may or may not do that, right? That's out of our that's that's out of the scope of our sphere of influence. But as an individuals, we can certainly do that. As a church, we can certainly do that. We look to God for solutions. Verse 7, he goes on. Surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, but who can, who can but prophesy? And so the idea here is that God warns his people before he brings judgment. That's what Nate's been talking about on Wednesday nights in Revelation. That's what we keep talking about here in these, in these verses. God warns his people before he brings judgment. That's God's grace. Now, as a bit of a doctrinal point, I want to bring this out a little bit if I can. We've got to keep Scripture in the context of Scripture, right? You always have to read Scripture in the context of Scripture. By the, for, the, for example, did you know that the Bible says there is no God? Right? The Bible says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you take that last part of that sentence out of context, it changes the meaning, right? So yeah, the Bible says there is no God, but, the Bible, but that sentence in proper context says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, right? So we read Scripture in the context of Scripture. In the Old Testament context, God spoke to his people primarily through the prophets, all right? Now, we believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are alive and well today, including prophecy. But in this context, God says, we don't, I don't do anything unless I reveal, first reveal a warning to the prophets. And in this case, by the way, sure enough, the Assyrian Empire came in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel about 25 years after this writing. So about 25 years after Amos went to Bethel and, and warned them, the Assyrians came in and basically decimated them, right? And so today, we still believe that all the gifts are, are alive, including the gift of prophecy. But I want you to catch this because it's important. Those prophecies never contradict the Scripture. Never contradict the Scripture and never contradict the whole Scripture. I believe we have, I'll just say it, because I'm teaching the Bible. I believe we have so-called prophets today that I really am not sure that they're prophets. And that's why we've got to be very careful. We've got to be very wise stewards of God's Word. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So Hebrews, in the New Testament context, says God speaks to us through his Son. So does that mean God, that we don't have prophets anymore? No, because we see throughout the New Testament examples of, of, uh, of prophecy. And Hebrews chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12 says, if we have the gift of prophecy, let us prophesy according to our faith. So it's a real gift. But the bottom line is, in the Old Testament, God spoke primarily through the prophets. Today, we have the inspired, inerrant word of God. We have the example of Jesus' life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, each of us individually, who will guide us into all truth, Jesus said. And so sometimes God does speak through prophets, who are consistent with and subject to the Word of God and consistent with the character of Jesus and operating by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say all that? Because I believe there are, there are prophets that maybe even genuinely, sincerely think they're prophets, but when I kind of listen to uh, what they're saying, it doesn't seem consistent with all of Scripture. Is that fair? Now, I don't... 
I don't fight anybody over that necessarily. I just duck. Okay? So, Jesus himself said, Beware of false prophets. Matthew chapter 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Okay? So Jesus instructed his disciples, and by extension us, to beware of false prophets. So there stands to reason that we will encounter false prophets or be exposed to them. Fair enough? So keep in mind, you know, he says, surely the Lord, verse 7, back to verse 7, surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals the secret to his servants, the prophets. That's in the context of the Old Testament uh, prophetic ministry. In our day, yes, he does speak through prophets, but not exclusively through prophets. And certainly his primary means of revealing himself or give, instructing us is through his word. Verse 9. Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. And so God's going to get into a little bit of uh, divine sarcasm here, okay? And so he says, Hey, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod. Remember, Ashdod is one of the Philistine cities. And proclaim in the palaces of Egypt. And assemble them on the mountains of Samaria. What's Samaria? Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. So what he's saying is, hey, gather up all the Egyptians and the Philistines and come watch the judgment that's going to come on the nation of Israel. He says, come and, come and watch them and see great tumults in her midst. God is justified to have some sarcasm here. He's bringing judgment for their sin, for their oppression, for their violence. So they won't be surprised when God's brings, God brings judgment. Therefore, verse 11, says, thus says the Lord God, an adversary will be, shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. So this is a description, a warning, a prediction of when the Assyrians would come. And sure enough, uh, this, the Assyrian Empire was the adversary that came 25 years after the speaking of this prophecy verse 12 thus says the lord as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a or a piece of an ear so shall the children of israel be taken out and who dwell in samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of the couch so in those days you know you're a shepherd you work for a uh, a farmer you work for a rich landowner right and and you're taking care of his sheep and um if one of the sheep comes up missing, the shepherd wants, or the owner wants to know, did you steal that sheep or did like a wild animal, like a lion get it, right? And if an animal got it, well, that's the cost of doing business, right? And so kind of the way most commentators read this is, is you know, a shepherd, if the lion gets one of the sheep, right, then the shepherd's going to like take the leftover like half of a leg, to bring back to the owner to say, yep, sure enough, a lion got this thing, right? And so, you know, two legs or a piece of an ear or whatever. Heard a description this morning about a, a chicken farmer, right? Describing, like, what body parts were left after the raccoons were there, right? So this happens. This is real life, right? And so in those days, he would say, in the same way, the children of Israel shall be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the course of a bed. The Samarians are going to, I'm sorry, the, the Assyrians are going to come and the devastation that's left over will be evidence that the Assyrians had been there. Verse 13, hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish them, I punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So when God brings judgment, he will specifically destroy the altars of Bethel. God's going to specifically destroy the altars of Bethel. Again, keep in mind, the mindset of the listener here in this first reading of this prophecy was, I'm a, I'm a Jewish guy just like everybody else. I'm following the Lord. I worship God at the, at the altar there in Bethel. doesn't matter that it's a golden calf, 
right? And that God said, no, you need to go down to Jerusalem to, to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice at the altar at Bethel. It's just more convenient. It's, it kind of you know, doesn't make waves, and, and we're just going to do it this way. And God says, no, I'm going to destroy that altar. I'm going to specifically destroy that altar. We need to be very careful that God is the one that decides how he is worshipped. God is the one that writes the rules, and he wrote them. And it's called the Bible. And we don't rewrite the Bible. We heard an example earlier this morning of the Bible being rewritten. I believe we're not done hearing examples of the Bible being rewritten. We need to go back and we need to read it for ourselves. And we need to know it and we need to understand it. And we need to understand it in the context of the whole scripture. That's why I'm so passionate about reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Because we got to know the whole thing. If you show me someone that, in my opinion, is doctrinally imbalanced, I'll show you somebody that, that, in my opinion, almost every time, does not read the Bible cover to cover. And I, well, I started it, and you're wondering what, I'm, what kind of juicy thing I'm getting ready to say, so I'll just go ahead and say it. I can almost tell what doctrinal bent that person has based on whatever scripture they quote all the time. Does that make sense? Enough of that. You know what I mean. He says, I'm going to destroy that altar at Bethel. They thought it was a house of worship. I'm going to destroy that altar at Bethel. That should make us shudder. You know, in the book of Revelation, it starts out with seven letters to seven churches, right? And the church, I believe, at Laodicea, Jesus himself says, I stand at the door and knock. Is it Laodicea? If anyone opens the door and hears my voice, I'll come in with him. Can you imagine can you imagine Jesus outside the church saying, hey, hey guys, can I come in? Get your head around that. A church that calls itself Christian, that does all kinds of cool things, that meets social needs and sings praises to God and does cool stuff and all kinds of ministry and all kinds of activity and all kinds of committees and money coming in and out and cool stuff. And Jesus says, hey, can I come in? And by the way, he does that to each of our hearts, right? We might think, I go to church I put up a Christmas tree faithfully every December. I, sell, I, 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 get, I get a new hat every year for Easter. I'm a Christian. And he would say, hey, can I come in? Be a part of what's going on in there? That should concern us. That should concern us. And so here's another example. He says, you know what? That altar Bethel, it's coming down. I don't care if it is a religious thing. I don't care if you guys think it's, it's authentic. It's coming down. And by the way, verse 15, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Again, we saw, talked about this nation was enjoying a time of great prosperity right? Well, guess what happens when judgment comes? Is prosperity like some kind of buffer? Like it's going to protect you? No. If you've got a summer house and a winter house, and they're both made of ivory, that doesn't protect you. That doesn't protect us in the day of judgment. Chapter 4, he goes on. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan. You've got to like this. He's speaking to the women. I, I'm just reading it. I didn't write it. 
Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. Now the cows of Bashan in those days were like, Bashan was, a, was a, an area that, was, that had rich vegetation, and so their cows were very um, prolific, very healthy, very, well, I guess if you're a cat, if you're a cow, I guess the word is fat. You're supposed to, you know, they were famous for that, okay? And in this case, the women of Israel are being portrayed as indulgent, oppressive to the poor, and demanding their husbands to continue to spoil them. Hey, bring me some more wine, right? We talked about entitlement, right? This is a, this is a pretty graphic description. Hey, bring us wine. Bring, bring some more wine over here. The Lord, has, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. And so this was actually literally fulfilled as well. So often prophecy is so literally fulfilled. We've talked about this before, right? And in the and actually uh, archaeological and historical evidence supports this, that when the Assyrian Empire came in to, to take over a nation, what they'd do for their prisoners is they'd put like a hook in their nose or in their lip or even through their bottom of their jaw, right? Now, if I had a... I don't want to get too specific, but if I had a hook, like a big fish hook, through my lip like this, right, with a string on the end of it, and you're leading me, where am I going to go? Wherever you lead me. I'll be saying, wherever you lead me, I'll follow, right? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to resist. And that's how they treated their prisoners. And catch the picture here, again, these pictures to me are, they speak loud. But imagine the women of the northern kingdom of Israel being carried off like this. It's sad. Sin is sad. And so God holds both the men and the women accountable, and he gives this example here. He says, come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgression again, divine sarcasm. Hey, come on, let's come on up to Bethel and transgress. Let's come up to Gilgal, one of the other areas there around that area, and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning. It's okay, bring your religious service. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Bring your tithes every three days, right? We bring money into the church. Offer a sacrifice of, of thanksgiving with leaven. Leaven is always a type of, it's a picture of sin in the, in the Bible. Proclaim and announce the free will offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. He's saying, you know, God doesn't appreciate sacrificial religion accompanied by sin. It's, it's been going on for a long time and still goes on today that I can live my own self-indulgent, sinful life, and if I go to church, if I put money in the box, if I sacrifice a, you know, a lamb, if I do whatever it is, act of religious service, I feel good about myself. God says no. What did, God sell, what did Samuel tell Saul when Saul wanted to sacrifice? He said, you know what? To obey is better than to sacrifice. Don't give me religious lip service. Just obey. And for us, for us, let's don't give God religious lip service. He sees right through it. Let's worship God as he prescribes. Let's read his word and do what it says. Let's, let's expect God to be God. Let's look, let's look up to God for, for problems that only God can fix. And let's stop looking to man. Stop looking to experts. Experts are a good way to be disappointed. Now, from verse 6 down to, to verse 11, God's going to give us uh, five examples of how he warned them with discipline. You know, sometimes God will bring discipline, and this is basically what he's saying here. He's warning them. He's trying to get their attention, okay? And again... 
Think of this in terms of the context of our society today. He says, you know what? I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your place, places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. By the way, that doesn't mean good dental care. That means hunger, right? I gave you lack of bread to try to get your attention, and yet, what? You didn't return to me. He said, I with also withheld rain from you. And when, when there was still three months left to harvest, you know, at the end of the harvest, that's when you really need the rain. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon. Where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. And yet, God brought drought and famine, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. What's God trying to do? He's trying to get them to return to him. What does God, I believe, sometimes do with his children, with his people, with nations, with individuals? Sometimes he'll allow some discipline in our life. Hebrews talks about this. Sometimes he'll allow maybe something to, like, not to, not to necessarily punish us just for the sake of having us go through things, but sometimes as we go through things, it should cause us to look up and say, wait a minute, God, am I supposed to be doing something different? Because the context here would tell us that he's doing these things trying to get a response of repentance from them. He said, I gave you, I gave you clean teeth and no bread, and yet you didn't return. I gave you drought, and yet you didn't return. Verse 9, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees. So the, the blight was the, was the scorching of the east wind. The mildew was parasites. And you're trying to increase your vineyard, your garden, your fig trees, and your olive trees. The locusts devoured them. Yet, you've not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword, along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. God says, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to get your attention, yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He said, I, I removed some of, your, some of your towns, and yet you've not returned to me. So many of these examples that God tried to get the attention of the Jewish people prior to judgment, and yet they did not return to him. Let that not be said of us. He says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. You know, we're all going to face God. Philippians chapter 2 says that one day every knee will bow. That is every knee. Every human knee will bow. And every human tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So one day we're all going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Some for joy, some for regret. But the reality is, we're all going to meet the Lord. That can either be very scary, or it can be very comforting. I hope for us it's comforting. For some it will be very scary. For behold, he says, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. So you catch this? Who are we talking about that we're going to meet? We're going to meet the one who created the wind, who declares to man what his thought is, who makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. You know, I think the distinction is we need to remember that God is God. We need to remember that God is God. 
we heard earlier, part of the, the, the origins of these problems all go back to sort of our evolutionary mindset that man is, is the pinnacle of all existence, right? I mean, if, I just, if, if, if evolution is true, there's no God. We are as good as it gets. Look around, everybody. This is as good as it gets. Are you encouraged? Are you encouraged? It's as good as it gets. The collective wisdom in this room, that's like, yeah, bring it on. Solution to world's problems, right? We got it all right here. That's what evolution tells us, that we're it. And so that makes us say, oh, we got we to gotta do something, <laughs> right? But if we realize that we're talking about God is the one that forms mountains. God is the one that creates the wind. God's the one that declares to man what his thought is. God makes morning darkness. He treads the high places of the earth. God of hosts is his name. Then I'm okay looking up to him, right? So again, and I want to draw too much as, as I want to close out. I don't want to draw too much parallel here, but I want to draw enough. Is that fair? The nation of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, they were prosperous. They were proud. They rewrote their own Judaism so much that they could worship a golden calf and think they were okay. God brought judgment because they thought that they knew better. They didn't think God needed to be worshipped in the way he wrote. And yet God, in his mercy, tried to send them famine, drought, hunger, pestilence to try to get their attention because of his love for them. And yet they didn't return. I think in my mind as I parallel particularly chapters 1 and 2 where he talks about the surrounding nations, right? I think of our day, right? There's a war between Russia and Ukraine. We might look around and say, wow, that's, that's, that's hard. There are threats in China. There are threats in North Korea. There are threats in the Middle East. There are threats of environmental concerns. And as we get closer within our own nation, we have challenges, do we not? We have political polarization, right? Regardless of what poll you're on. We have economic difficulties. We have social polarization. We have rampant crime. We have drug abuse. We have mental health crises. We had COVID and the medical response to COVID, right? Which... I'll say on record, was a disaster. If you look at life expectancy since 2020, ours went down worse than the rest of the world, right? Are you okay trusting all these problems to the collective wisdom of man? Well, you say, well, that's because my man's not in office. Can I say this? Hardcore conservatives, give me a break. It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter who's in office. These are God problems. Do we need to be responsible citizens? Absolutely. More responsible citizens than we have been? Absolutely. Collectively, a more responsible society than we have been? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, who's going to fix all these problems? God. Period. And I just have to wonder. Again, I'm wondering. I'm not proclaiming. Is that fair? Did everybody hear that? Don't misquote me. I'm wondering. God says, you know, I, I gave you guys hunger, and yet you didn't return to me. I gave you guys pestilence, and yet you didn't return to me.
I gave you guys all these challenges, and yet you didn't return to me. I got to wonder, to this great nation that was founded on biblical principles, I got to wonder, is, is God not saying, you know what, I allowed this to happen, and it looks like you're falling apart, and yet you didn't return to me. I allowed this to happen. I allowed, how many more of this to happens are we going to tolerate as a society before we look up? Second Chronicles, very familiar verses, but please listen to them again in their context. Second Chronicles chapter 7, King Solomon has just dedicated the newly built temple. And then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. He didn't choose Bethel. He didn't choose that temple at Bethel. He didn't choose the one up in Dan. He chose this one, the one that Solomon built. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, when I do that kind of stuff, then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. We need to be people that look up individually in our own lives and socially. And we need to be people that set that example for others in love. In love. It's not a matter of who wins, which party, which this, which fight, which argument, who can be more obnoxious. We've got an obnoxious contest going on in America. Anybody notice that? And everybody's winning. Maybe it's time to look up with humility. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God. And that as burdensome as, as the challenges of this life can be, we take tremendous comfort in knowing that you're in control of all things. You're in control of our hearts, and you're in control of our community. You're in control of our world. You're in control of this cosmos. And Lord, we are thankful for that. And Lord, we do ask that we would be people that would never, ever rewrite your word. We would be people who would never, ever do our own thing and then just ask you to bless it. But we want to be led by you, guided by you, and empowered by you to do your will. So Lord, help us to always be those people. And we'll give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have an awesome, awesome week.